Okay, I'm going to give everybody fair warning. If you were here Wednesday night, you know what happened. We've got a demon in the wires. We had a lot of static coming through the speakers that got onto the, onto the tapes as well. So we've had, had, I think Bryce was doing some work on that, but we never really figured out what the problem was. It may be in the mixer itself because we cut everything electronic off up here at the front including the microphone, and we still had static. So I'm just going to warn you to be prepared. Jim's up there watching the situation. And if that starts developing this morning, then um, Jim, he's only going to, I mean, uh, uh, Ernie, Jim's only going to be up there for about five minutes watching this, and then he, uh, he's got his Sunday school class. So if we start hearing that static, I may signal you to go grab him and, because last time it didn't start till 30 minutes into the message, so we'll just see how it goes. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. I have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess your sins to God the Father and the privacy of your priesthood to prepare you to take in the word of God this morning. And then I will have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it is a great privilege to have the freedom to gather together to worship you, to study your word, to learn that there is absolute truth in the universe and that there is a God with whom we can have a personal relationship. Father, we thank you for the vast array of information which you have revealed to us in Scripture, which, is, which informs us of the plan, your plans and purposes for human history, the scope of your work within human history, and the tremendous salvation which you have provided for us, a salvation that is not earned or deserved, a salvation that was planned for from eternity past, was performed on the cross as our Lord Jesus Christ died as our substitute, and has been provided for us through the illuminating ministry of God the Holy Spirit and his regenerating ministry. Now, Father, we continue as believers after salvation to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our, our obligation as believers. 
Though we cannot lose our salvation, we do have responsibilities as believers, and one is to glorify you in all that we do and all that we say, and that you have provided us with a fantastic array of spiritual assets for this church age. The time in which we live is a unique time, and it is with these assets in mind that we study the doctrines we are studying regarding the ascension and session of Christ. We pray that as we study these things, you will challenge us with what we are studying that it may further encourage us in our own spiritual life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Now, in the last couple of weeks, we've set things up for the ascension of Christ. And for many people, they think of the ascension of Christ as nothing more than the fact that Jesus, after his resurrection, spent some 40 days on the earth giving new directives to his disciples, uh, revealing himself, showing himself to many people to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection, that it was not just some mystical event in the minds of men, some subjective happening imagined by distraught followers, but that he had indeed conquered death. He appeared to over 500 people. And then it was time for Jesus to go back to heaven to be with the Father. And that's about all the people think of in terms of the ascension of Christ, and that he was not going to stay on the earth, and he left to go back to heaven from whence he will come again. And that's about where it stops in terms of our understanding of the ascension. However, there is a lot more to the doctrine of the ascension of Christ and his session. The ascension, of course, only took a few minutes at most as he left this planet and physically ascended through the upper atmosphere, through the galaxies, to the right hand of God the Father, as we studied last time and will expand upon this, this morning. And then he was seated at the right hand of God the Father. Why? There is no activity in being Seated, He is there at a place of rest. Certainly there are ministries that he is involved in during this time, but it is essentially a position of waiting. So what's going on? Why does he ascend? Why didn't his kingdom come in? And we studied that. We saw that he did not establish his kingdom because the kingdom, his kingship was rejected by the Jews, and therefore the kingdom had to be postponed. It did not come in in any way, shape, or form, despite the claims of amillennialists and neo-dispensationalists who are called progressive dispensationalists. The kingdom has been completely and totally postponed, and something new came into human history. It is not that God was suddenly surprised by the affairs or events of of man, and so he had to jump to plan B. Plan B was always his plan, but there was real, true contingency in God's plan. He has real options. And when people make the wrong choice, then that moves things to plan B. So God's sovereign will entails the plan Bs, the plan Cs, all the way down the line. But... That does not mean that the options are not real and the choices are not real. So because the king was rejected and the kingdom was postponed, Jesus had to leave. And he ascended to the Father. But there is a purpose in this ascension. And the reason we are studying this, so you don't lose sight of the context of our study, is we are in the process of studying 1 Corinthians 
1 Corinthians 12 is the great chapter, the most extensive chapter on spiritual gifts. But there are three chapters on spiritual that discuss, or three passages that discuss spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. It is in the setup of Ephesians 4, which we'll get to this morning, that Paul connects the giving of spiritual gifts to the ascension of Christ. So that raises the question, what is that connection? Why is it necessary that we that Paul had to go back to Psalm 68, pull a passage from the Old Testament, in order to lay the groundwork for why Jesus gave spiritual gifts? So that's why we are engaged in this, what might appear to be a sidetrack study, on ascension. So in Acts chapter 1, we have the main account. There are other references we went to last time in in, uh, Luke and Mark. But this is the key passage, the most extensive passage on the ascension itself. And Acts chapter 1 takes place 40 days after the resurrection. And Jesus is gathered together with his disciples and we read in verse 2 that, our, let's just read the first two verses. The former account, that would be Luke. Luke was the author of both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Actually, they're part 1 and part 2. He addresses both of them to the same person. We don't know much about Theophilus. We don't know if that was actually a, a person's name or if that was just a, a pseudonym because the word, the name itself, Theo. Theophilus from Theos and Philos is, means a lover of God. So we don't know if this was a proper name or a nickname that Luke applied to him. So in verse 1, Luke says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. And once again, we have the, a verb there uh, from uh, based on the root lambano, passive verb, that indicates the, that Jesus is received into heaven. Now, Acts 1, 9 and following gives us the details of this ascension. After a few parting words and parting mandates to the disciples, we read in verse 9, Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, and here we have a present active participle indicating action there he finishes speaking and they start watching and the word there the verb is blepo indicating an intense watching their eyes are riveted on this sight that they something they had never witnessed before and that is a human being just basically lifting off into space and while they while they watched he was taken up and this is the Aorist passive indicative of the verb epiro, meaning to lift up. But again, it is a passive. He was taken up. There's about four different words used to describe the ascension of Christ, and they, with, with a couple of exceptions, are almost all in the passive voice, which indicates that he is receiving the action of being taken up. We don't know who actually performs uh, the action. But he has, of course, the power in his resurrection body to do this. 
but the passive voice seems to indicate that it is uh, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, that is actually energizing uh, this event. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him. Now, here's our second important verb here. The verb receive is hupolumbano, and it means to lift, uh, to lift up, to reply, or to accept. And the cloud is the subject of the, the verb, and the voice of the verb is an active tense. So the cloud is seen as performing the action. It is the cloud that is seen uh, from, from the perspective of the disciples to just envelop him as he goes up. Now, of course, the fact that it is a cloud that receives him is going to resonate with any Jewish reader with the Old Testament appearances of the Lord in a cloud. This happened again and again. It's usually referred to as the Shekinah. Now, I'm leaving this afternoon to head to Dallas, where I'm going to be speaking at the Conservative Theological Society meeting, and I'm presenting a paper on the glory of the Lagos. And I've been doing a lot of study the last few weeks on the whole concept of the Shekinah. S-H-E-K-I-N-A-H. Now, this is a fascinating concept to study, and we've gone through some of this before back in 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.13 when we covered the believer being the temple of the Holy Spirit. But the word Shekinah itself never occurs in the Old Testament. Now, when most people think of the word Shekinah, they think of some sort of overt manifestation of the glory of God. They think of his, a brilliant manifestation, a flash of light, fireworks, the brilliance that's associated with this. We think of the pillar of fire in the Old Testament, the light that, that uh, illuminated the holy of holies. But there always seems to be light associated with this. And so whenever you think of the Shekinah, there's this image that comes to people's minds of light. Furthermore, Shekinah is usually linked with another word, and that is the word glory. And the word glory in the Hebrew is a word based on the the verb, uh, actually it's the the noun kabod, K-A-B-O-D, kabod, which has as its root meaning something that is heavy, something that is important, weighty, and by application, if someone is important or weighty, then they have honor and glory. And so that comes to mean the idea of honor and glory. The interesting thing is that this word, when it comes over into Greek, is translated by the, by the Greek word doxa, D-O-X-A, which is the root for the doxology. We sang the doxology this morning, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. That is a doxology, which is a hymn of praise to God. But the Greek concept of doxa has more to do with light and, and, and also uh, reputation. It's a different concept than what you get from the Hebrew concept kabod. So this is a basic principle is that 
often the writers in the New Testament use Greek because that's the lingua franca of the day, Koine Greek. But when they use Greek words, you better go back and understand them from the context of the Hebrew and the Old Testament usage and not understand them from the context of a classical Greek or 5th century B.C. usage because that's not the frame of reference for the writers of Scripture. The frame of reference for the writers of Scripture is the Old Testament concept, which is quite different. And in the Old Testament, you have these two phrases, the glory of of God, and you have the phrase, the Shekinah, that's picked up and developed in later rabbinical writings. By the time you, the Old Testament closed, the, the rabbis that came along in the intertestamental period didn't want to say the name of God. They became very superstitious about using the word Yahweh. So in order to avoid talking about God, they used these circumlocutions, uh, which is just using another word, an indirect word, in order to explain a concept. And so they use the word Shekinah to refer to the presence of God. Now, this word Shekinah comes from the Hebrew word Shakan, S-H-A-K-A-N, which means to dwell. Now, it is not a permanent dwelling. It has the idea of a temporary dwelling. So the term Shekinah itself is a term that doesn't emphasize the brilliance, the light, the flash and pizzazz that we think of when we think of the manifestation of the glory of God. It simply means the dwelling presence of God. And then the term glory and the glory of God or the presence of the, of the glory of God was a word that was used in Scripture that comes to mean the presence of God. It was a way the Scripture identified the presence of God. So it was an idiom for that. So when you combine these two concepts, what you see with Shekinah is that the emphasis is on the dwelling presence of God. In fact, when you read phrases, the glory of God passed before Moses, think Use simple word substitution. The presence of God passed before Moses, and you catch the real impact of that sentence. It's not talking. It's not emphasizing this this brilliance, this uh, light emanating from a source that we often think of. The the real thrust, the core concept, emphasizes the presence of God, and so this was signified in the Old Testament through a cloud, again and again and again, clouds are associated with the presence of God, and then fire or light, or uh, sometimes it's expressed as an intense uh, light or flame, even, that uh, indicates the presence of God. So when a Jew would read of Luke's account here, in verse 9, that a cloud received him out of their sight, it is reminiscent of the the glory cloud, the Shekinah departure. And it would also be a reminder of the departure of the Shekinah from the temple in, uh, in the book of Ezekiel. Now, here's a picture of the Mount of Olives as it exists today. Here we have a graphic showing the basic outline and 
organization of the city of Jerusalem at the time of the ascension. And what you will notice here is that on the east side of the city, you have the temple complex. This was a huge area, and then this rectangle in the middle was the temple building itself. But just to the east of the temple precinct itself, there's an enormous cliff or drop-off, and this area just to the east or to the right on your, as you look at it is the Kidron Valley which was where they took a lot of the, down, down to, uh, to the southern part is where they dumped a lot of the garbage and burned it, and that's called Gihon, and that's where you get the term Gehenna, for, which was used for hell, because the fires burning the garbage was a, a, a reminder or an image of the lake of fire. Well, across the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives, which is not a mountain like we think of a mountain, but it's actually a long ridge line, high ridge line, and then just off of the screen to the what would be the southeast, uh, not very far away, only two miles uh, around you, but you had a road that walked around the southern shoulder of the Mount of Olives was the town of Bethany. So Bethany was on the on on a shoulder on the southeastern flank of the Mount of Olives, and according to Luke, this is where. Jesus went on the way to, to Bethany, and then they walked up on the ridge line, and it was from there that he ascended to heaven. And we saw that this is a picture of what had happened in the Old Testament, or it's, it's actually a fulfillment of the type that had occurred in the Old Testament when the Shekinah departed from the temple in Exodus uh, chapters uh, 9, verse 3, Exodus 10, 4, and 11, 23. So just as the Shekinah had departed Israel after Israel's corporate rejection of God, so Jesus departs Israel from the same departure point and ascends to heaven. Now as he leaves, we read in verse 10, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And we, I pointed out last time that this means that he will come again just like he went. He went physically. He will return physically. He ascended from that point physically, visibly through the heavens. He will descend physically and visibly through the heavens. He ascended bodily. He will descend bodily. He went up from the Mount of Olives, and he will return to the Mount of Olives. And it's important to note the significance of that phrase because you have various positions that have developed in church history which deny that. You have the position of uh, some who try to say that the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of Jesus' return, and that denies the literal, physical, future return of Christ. Others, today, you have the rise of a viewpoint called preterism, which means past, and it's a, it's a uh, branch of eschatology. It's actually, it's a branch of post-millennial eschatology, and it's becoming very popular today. And in preterism, these theologians uh, attempt to assign the return of Christ to 70 A.D., that he returned in judgment, 
But again, it doesn't fit the phraseology of Acts uh, 1, verse 11. And then amillennialists have sometimes suggested that his return is simply an allegorical or symbolic way of speaking about the church, that the church is the body of Christ, and Jesus returned in the form of the church. So we are now living in the, the millennial kingdom. And that, of course, is an absurd concept. Now, Jesus left because there was another plan another stage of the plan that was about to take place. This was the mystery doctrine that had not been revealed in the Old Testament. And what makes the church age unique, and this is when we come out of this study on the ascension, this is where we're going to to land, is on the importance of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We're headed towards spiritual gifts. These are spiritual enablements provided by God the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. Nothing like this has ever existed before in human history. Now, there are similarities and parallels with the Old Testament, but remember, among spiritual gifts, you have gifts such as prophecy. But prophecy is a spiritual gift. It was given by God the Holy Spirit, and by definition, a spiritual gift is a spiritual enablement or empowerment given at the point of salvation to a church-age believer. Now, there were prophets in the Old Testament, and there will be prophets in the tribulation period. But the function of prophecy in those dispensations is not the same. It is not a spiritual gift, because those people are different. Those are that operates under the dispensation of Israel. So you had teachers under the uh, Old Testament economy, but they did not have a spiritual gift or enablement by God the Holy Spirit. The prophets, Some prophets performed miracles. Moses performed miracles. Elijah and Elisha performed miracles. Uh, these were not the spiritual gift of miracles that occurred in the early part of the church age. Now, those are references to some temporary gifts, but they were spiritual gifts. So we have to recognize that the central issue in the church age is going to be the Holy Spirit and his relationship to the believer. So in John 16:7, Jesus told his disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, the Parakletos, the Holy Spirit will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, it's also clear from this passage that the sending of the Holy Spirit is seen as distinct from himself. He sees that this is a different person in the Trinity, Remember in the Trinity, you have three persons who share one essence. They are united, but they are also three distinct persons. And so here we see a distinction between Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity. So Jesus says, the helper will come only if I leave. So he has to leave in order for the next stage in God's plan to work out because God is going to demonstrate certain things through church age believers about the that, that relate to our testimony and our role in the angelic conflict. From there we went to passage some other passages which I'll briefly review to see how the old the, the New Testament, other writers in the New Testament, conceive of and present the ascension of Christ. 
From there, we're going to look at Old Testament pictures that they borrowed to show the doctrine of the ascension. The reason I say that is because in the Old Testament, this whole concept of a church age was a mystery doctrine. Nevertheless, there are pictures of the ascension that are used from the Old Testament. Before we get a, I get ahead of myself, First Peter 3.22, we're told that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. This is what happened in the ascension, is that he is elevated over all of the angels, all the authorities and powers in the angelic realm. Hebrews 4.14, we're told, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And what I want you to note in Hebrews 4.14 is that the passing through the heavens and the fact that Jesus is now our high priest becomes a foundation in the next verse for having confidence uh, in him as our high priest because he has... Uh, suffered in the same way that we have. So the ascent, doctrine of the ascension is not just some sort of abstract doctrine. That's what I want you to understand. We get to a point in our modern evangelical churches where we think that so much of this, well, that's fine, that's good doctrine, but let's get to the real meaty stuff. As we're going to see in the second hour, you have to, and you get when you get into certain situations in life, you have to train yourself to stop think objectively and to think through what's actually going on in God's plans and purposes. It's not just a matter of, okay, what do I do right now to solve this problem? It's a matter of stopping and taking a little perspective and understanding how your life and what's going on in your spiritual life fits within the overall picture and pattern. Now, the thing I want to emphasize here, go back to 1 Peter 3.22, where we read, Who has gone into heaven. This is the verb peruamai, which is a word used for a journey, that somebody leaves from point A and they journey to point B. Then in Hebrews 4.14, we see that Christ has passed through the heavens. This is physical, spatial uh, imagery and physical spatial verbiage which indicates that he has passed through the multiple heavens and we know from scripture that there are that there are three heavens and the first heaven is the earth's atmosphere the second heaven is the universe of the starry skies or what we would call outer space but to to many people who have bought into the assumptions uh, human viewpoint thinking and evolution, they think the universe is endless, that the universe is infinite. But the universe is finite. It was created by God, therefore there is an end to the universe. It does not go on forever and ever. And the picture in the scriptures is that Jesus ascends physically and bodily from the Mount of Olives. He ascends through the earth's atmosphere and through the heavens, through the galaxies, through outer space, and in a matter of moments was at a physical, spatial location somewhere out there called the throne of God. And the reason we say that is because he is, he is seated at the right hand of God. Now, deity cannot be seated. So I want to emphasize the fact that when we think through this, we have to think of this in terms of what Jesus has accomplished in terms of his humanity. He is the God-man. But as the second person of the Trinity, 
as the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who shared in all of the divine attributes equally with God the Father, including his sovereignty, the Lord Jesus as the second person of the Trinity was always in authority over the angels. Now think about that a minute. There never was a time when he wasn't in authority over the angels. He was involved in the creation of the angels. But something unique is happening in the ascension and session because there is now Jesus is now being elevated to a position over the angels. Well, this doesn't have reference to his deity. For one thing, his deity is omnipresent. So his deity is, can't be seated. But he is seated in his humanity, and it is Jesus Christ as a human being, as the God-man, but it is the man side that is being emphasized here, that it is Jesus Christ as the Son of Man, as, the, uh, as true humanity who physically ascends in that human resurrection body, physically ascends through the heavens to be seated at a physical location, called at the throne of God, and from there he exercises authority over the angels. Now, that sets the stage because this is the first time in history that a human being is elevated to this kind of pattern. There is a human being at the helm of the universe. There is a human being controlling history, and there is a human being now who who controls uh, the angels. And then we came to Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, which gives us a little more insight. Ephesians 1, 20, which he reads, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies, literally, New American Standards is heavenly places, but literally it is the heavenlies. He is seated now, which is a position of power, and he is far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So Jesus Christ has now been elevated over all of the angelic forces. There is a human being over the angels. Now, One of the reasons this is going to be important is because at the instant of your salvation, you are entered into Christ. You are identified with Christ. You are made one with Christ so that positionally, where are you? Positionally, you are over the angels. That's positional. And we have that not because of who and what we are, but because of who and what Jesus Christ accomplished when he had his strategic victory over Satan, and the strategic victory was primarily accomplished with different elements to this strategic victory. And we have to, I want to make sure you understand the difference between strategy and tactics. Strategy is the overall is the overall game plan for achieving an objective. For example, at, the, during, at D-Day, Operation uh, Overlord, Eisenhower had an overall strategy for how they would uh, take Europe away from the Nazis. But when it came down to the individual units, then you're talking about how they're going to take um, Pond du Hoc, for example. Then the Rangers had to have and to rely on in, 
individual tactics. So strategy sets the overall game plan, and then what you do in terms of individual struggles in your spiritual life involves tactics. And tactics primarily relates for us to the use of the ten uh, stress busters or problem-solving devices. These are the tactics that we use in order to gain, in order to implement, not to gain, but to implement the victory that was achieved for us at the cross. Now, this overall strategy had has a couple of phases. The first phase is the is the victory on the cross, where Christ pays the penalty for our sins. The second stage of that victory is the recognition and affirmation of that and approval of that by the, by God the Father, which is indicated through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the third element of that overall strategic victory is the ascension, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is currently now in heaven elevated above all of the angels. And the terminology that is used here is loaded with military, uh, with a military background. And it's always important in the military, in any kind of strategic situation, to take the high ground. And what happened in the ascension of Christ is that he was, he took the high ground over Satan and the angels. He has taken the spiritual high ground. Now, I want to give some illustrations here historically on the importance of having the high ground. On the overhead, you have a map of the Battle of Long Island. And the, these lines in black are, represent the British lines under General Howe. The lines in white here represent the lines of the American forces under Washington. And this, you can see, this is a ridge line of the uh, Guion Heights that ran from southwest to northeast. And what happened in this battle early on in the Revolution is that General Howe executed a brilliant maneuver, and he flanked the American troops. You can see where you have these black lines over here to the upper right, and they represent the uh, forces of Cornwallis and Clinton, who found this back road that was unknown by the American forces. They didn't spot it, and so they didn't they didn't send any troops up here to block the advance, and Cornwallis was able to come around. Yes, this is the same Cornwallis who later uh, surrendered down at Yorktown. Uh, Cornwallis was able to flank the American troops and to seize the high ground so that Washington's troops had to retreat back to uh, Brooklyn Heights, and eventually they had to escape under the cover of darkness because once the British troops had the high ground, then they had the advantage, and they set up their artillery there, and they could just uh, pulverize the uh, American forces at will. So that brings up a point that if that when you don't have the high ground, sometimes you have to make a strategic retreat because battles are not always won by a head-to-head confrontation. In fact, uh, one of the great principles and observations of strategy is the great military victories in history have rarely been won by a direct head-to-head confrontation. They have been run, won through an indirect 
uh, assault through some sort of envelopment of the enemy, which if you look at what happened spiritually at the cross, that was the last thing that Satan would have expected. He would have expected that if there's going to be this head-to-head confrontation with God, then that's what it would be. Instead, he seems to win a tremendous victory by having the Messiah crucified, rejected and crucified, but in that he gets subtly enveloped by God, and his very victory turns out to be his devastating defeat. And so we see the strategy of, of God is, is subtle and indirect, and often we win battles through indirect Techniques as opposed to a direct head-to-head confrontation. Well, this principle of the high ground has been developed and seen in various battles. If you took the time back in the spring, back in April or April, or maybe it was March, they came out with the film Gods and Generals. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. I understand it's supposed to be released in DVD soon, right? Anybody know? Now? It's out now? Then you need to get that and watch it. It is a wonderful uh film, the expression of how it it expresses the Christianity and the doctrinal beliefs of especially uh, Lee and Jackson in the South is extremely accurate and one of the most accurate presentations of Christianity and its impact on the way people think that I've ever seen on film. And in the battle, in, in the movie, which takes place prior to Gettysburg, the, uh, Michael, uh, or actually Michael Scherer wrote the book, uh, uh, Killer Angels, which was the, uh, what well, the first movie was based on, on uh, Gettysburg that came out six or seven years ago, and then his son came along and wrote a pe- prequel to it, Gods and Generals, which gives the history of the key f- generals in, in, uh, at Gettysburg from the beginning of the war between the states up to the Battle of Gettysburg. And then he wrote a a sequel called The Last Full Measure, and that too will be come out in a movie. And they are very well researched, very well documented, and what you see is that what happened when you don't have the high ground at the Battle of Fredericksburg. The southern troops had the high ground, and the Federals just kept throwing throwing men across uh, an open field while the uh, southern troops had the high ground and were behind uh, a brick wall, and they just decimated the federal troops, just the opposite of what happened at Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg. And here I have a map of Gettysburg, and what you see here is the uh, classic button hook, which is the, the, uh, the defensive lines of the federal troops here. And they occupied Cemetery Hill up here on the north, and then they uh, all the way down through Cemetery Ridge down to Little Round Top, which is where they had a devastating battle on the second day at Gettysburg. But what set this whole thing up in this way, Lee never should have gone uh, and attacked. He should have done what what Washington did at at um, Brooklyn Heights, and that is had a had a strategic retreat and picked his ground. He he uh, he had sent early in on the first day, and early was supposed to take Cemetery Hill, but early got there late, and he met, and that had given the federal troops opportunity to to strengthen their lines, and so he broke off too early, and he did not seek 
keep the initiative and pursue it. He could have, if he had known it, he didn't have the intelligence. I don't mean native intelligence. I mean he didn't have the uh, the information necess- to know that there was no depth to the federal lines. But if he had pushed it, he could have seized the uh, Cemetery Hill, which would have given the Confederate troops the high ground. As it was, the Confederate troops did not have the high ground. And so on the third day at Gettysburg, you have that terrible uh, episode of Pickett's Charge, where they charged across that huge open field, just like the Federals had at Fredericksburg, and were just mowed down. And that shows what happens, when, you, again, when you don't have the high ground. And then to bring it up to a little more modern battle, and one that has a little relevance for uh, Dave back there, at Iwo Jima. Many people do not understand everything that happened on Iwo Jima. Many people at the time didn't, because the most famous picture that's probably ever come out of a war is the picture of the, the four Marines, or actually there's six Marines, raising the flag on Mount Suribachi. And that happened on the third or fourth day of the battle. But the battle actually lasted uh, 26 or 27 days. Right, Dave? And Dave was there for most of them and managed to come off. He was one of the few that came off uh, without being wounded. Now, my dad was in, uh, I think you were in the 5th Division uh, or 4th. Were you in the 5th Division or 4th Division? You were in the 4th Division. My dad was also in the 4th Division, and he, but he went in on the first wave and lasted, um, he lasted 48 hours. He got a bronze star, silver star, and two purple hearts, hearts in 48 hours. He always told me afterwards, I got enough camping experience on Iwo Jima. I don't want to go camping. But down here on the southwestern tip of the island was Mount Suribachi. And the reason that had to be taken and the significance of the planting of the flag on Mount Suribachi is because along the uh, eastern flank of that uh, volcanic mountain, the Japanese had their artillery and their machine guns, and they could just rake at will all of the Marines landing along the beaches. So at the early stages of that battle, they had to send their men up to take Mount Suribachi and gain control of the high ground. And they did that on about the fourth day of the battle. And But that, that while that secured the landing beaches, it did not secure the island. And of course, when that picture was published back in the States, and, actually, and in fact, the author didn't even, I mean, the photographer didn't even know he had taken a great picture. It was one of those things that he saw the flag going up. He just grabbed his camera and took a kind of a swing shot and caught it, and he never realized what he had done. He sent the film off with a bunch of other film. In fact, he thought he had a better picture from something else that he wanted published and printed, and he sent it off, and it went back to Guam, and they they developed the film, and then one of the developers realized what a fantastic shot that was, and they wired that back to the States, and it got printed, and the photographer didn't even know what he had done for several weeks until he had gotten off of the island. But it was a time when uh, America was very discouraged because they kept hearing information about the tremendous number of Marines who were being killed on that island, and more Marines were killed on Iwo Jima than in, than in any other battle in the, in the Second World War. In fact, more Marines were killed on Iwo Jima than the rest of the war combined, I believe, and uh, more, uh, more uh, Medal of Honors were given to Marines on, from Iwo Jima than any other battle. But 
the Americans thought the war was over because they saw the picture of the flag raising. And they thought it was all over, but it wasn't over. It just secured the high ground so that tactical victory would be possible. And that is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. He has secured the high ground so that tactical victory is possible for us. Even though all authority has been given to him, it is not actuated in terms of the kingdom until he returns. Now, one other military battle is important to refer to in terms of holding the high ground. Just a few weeks ago, took a little vacation and drove up to Quebec. Now, if you haven't been to Quebec, it's a it's a beautiful town, and the old city is is gorgeous in the summer. I imagine it's horrendous in the winter, but in the summer, it's it's quite beautiful. It's a small town. You can walk across the old city from 20 minutes from one side to the other, but it's a one of the few fortified cities, and it was a site of one of the most significant battles on the North American continent in 1749. The French forces were commanded by Montcalm, and the British were assaulting it. This was part of the, one of the French and Indian Wars. And the British had a problem because the, the city itself is up on a high cliff and a high embankment, probably 500 feet, and very difficult to get up that, that cliff. And so the British held off, and they kept watching, and one day they saw the laundry women walking down a path to wash clothes down in the St. Lawrence River. So they spotted a, a route, and they were able then to gain access to the city. And they came up on what's an area that's right outside the walls. Today it's a, one of the largest city parks in the world. But it's the Plains of Abraham, and it's a rolling, uh, it's not flat, it's, it's very uh, uh, rolling and a little hilly. But this was the area where the battle took place. Never, but what happened was that the British had the city, and they had a fortification. They were on the defensive. Um, there's all kinds of tremendous applications from this spiritually. They were on the defensive in a secure position. There were about an equal number of troops, 4,500 French troops, 4,500 uh, British troops, and... As the British were approaching, the French did something stupid, strategic error. They left the fortification. They decided to go on the offensive, and they went out onto the plains of Abraham, where now they did not have a defensive protection, a defensive posture, and then they engaged in the battle with the British. In the battle, both Montcalm and Wolfe were killed, but the French were defeated by the tactics of the British. And as a result of that defeat, more real estate changed hands than at any, as a result of any other battle in human history. The All of Canada changed hands from the French to the British because of that defeat, because they failed to utilize the assets of the high ground and to stay in their defensive posture. So at the cross, Jesus Christ takes the high ground and provides the foundation for our tactical victory in the Christian life. Now let's go to Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4 verse 7, and we'll just begin to set things up for next week in terms of Old Testament pictures of the ascension. There's a fulfillment of a lot of information in the Old Testament that wasn't necessarily understood at the time. It wasn't understood in the Old Testament how these things fit together. 
In Ephesians 4, 7 we read, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now the term there for grace is a reference to spiritual gifts. We get that from the context. Spiritual gifts are given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now you would think he would go right on into a discussion of what these gifts are. But no, that's not how Paul wants us to think. Paul says, no, we have to go back and understand why we're given these gifts. Therefore, he quotes, in verse 8, he quotes an Old Testament passage in Psalm 68, verse 17. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, he goes on to say, now this expression, notice how Paul develops this passage. He quotes the Old Testament verse, and then he begins to exegete it for us. He gives, shows us the pattern that Paul taught, line upon line, word upon word, line upon line, precept upon precept. He didn't have nice little three-point points in a prayer homilies like most churches. When Paul taught, sometimes he would teach for two or three hours, and people sometimes fell asleep. One guy fell asleep, fell out of a window, almost killed himself. But uh, Paul taught a long time. Now this is now he didn't have a long worship service. You know, somebody's going to listen to this, and it wasn't that they sang for an hour and then had a bunch of announcements and then had a 20-minute sermon and then they had a couple of baptisms and a couple of infant dedications and then sang some more songs. They he would teach for two or three hours. And this is not uncommon today. Several years ago, a good friend of mine went to India on a missions trip, and he, he came home and said, I've never been so exhausted in my life. I would go some, to one village, and I would teach for two or three hours, and then they would ask me questions for about an hour and a half, and then I'd pile in a car and sleep for about three hours while we drove to the next village, and then I'd get out and do it again. And you come back to America, and when you've talked for 20 or 30 minutes, people start going to sleep. And that shows what hunger and positive volition really looks like. People desire the word. So Paul starts to take it apart. He sees this phrase, when he ascended on high. And in verse 9 he says, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended himself is also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might, purpose clause, fill all things. Well, we'll get into the exegesis of that eventually, but right now we want to focus on Ephesians 4.8. Ephesians 4.8 is a quote from Psalm 68.17, and you can hold your place there in, in uh, Ephesians 4 and just turn back, and we'll just briefly make a point on Psalm 8 and then on Psalm 68 and then come back to that next time. Psalm 68:17 Excuse me, Psalm 68:18 says Now those of you who haven't flipped over, you can look on the overhead and read along in Ephesians 4:8 while I read from Psalm 68:18. You have ascended on high you have led captivity captive. You have received gifts from men. You notice any difference? 
See, in Ephesians 4, it says, He gave gifts to men. And in Psalm 68, you received gifts from men. There's a couple of other important differences. First of all, 18 uses a second person singular addressing the Lord, addressing Yahweh. You have ascended on high. So Psalm 68, 18 is a verse that ascribes honor to Yahweh. And in Ephesians 4, 8, Paul ascribes this to the Lord Jesus Christ. This shows a recognition that Jesus Christ is the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, and that the revelation, the person of of deity that was revealed to the Jews in the Old Testament was the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. That it is a matter of ascending on high and it is the the whole picture here is of the Lord's victory, Yahweh's victory through Israel over Israel's enemies, and that as a result of that, he had uh, taken booty, which is then distributed among the Jews. And that's the same image that we have here is because of this ascension, which is a victorious military ascension, that it puts the Lord Jesus Christ in a position to distribute booty which is defined in context as spiritual gifts. So we will come back to this next time and fill out the background on Psalm 68 and plug it into Ephesians 4 to give us a greater understanding of how spiritual gifts function in the outworking of Christ's strategic victory over Satan in the angelic conflict. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time to study your word this morning, to recognize all that was accomplished by Christ on the cross and in his ascension, that in this ascension he is taking his victory to a new level in relationship to the angelic conflict. And we play a vital part in that in terms of our own testimony in the angelic conflict and how we apply the strategic victory of Christ in our own spiritual life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture says that all you need to do to be saved is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, to recognize that you are a sinner, that you have been separated from God from your moment of birth because of your spiritual death, and that you can do nothing, absolutely nothing, to impress God, to gain God's approval, or to make yourself acceptable to God. The only thing that makes you us acceptable to God is the presence of his perfect righteousness and we are given that as a free gift when we put our faith and trust in Christ alone because Christ paid the penalty for sin he is able to give us eternal life father we pray that you would continue to challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning we pray this in Christ's name amen